this week on the Backtable podcast. Our patients, again, don't present to us typically saying they have a Zenker's diverticulum. They present to us saying that they can't swallow and they're having some kind of problem. And, and I think that the initial workup and initial stratification of these patients are probably extremely important. You know, evaluating the Zenker's diverticulum, but also making sure we don't miss more distal pathology within the esophagus that can also present as solid food dysphagia that they localize in the cervical region. And so paying close attention to your esophageal fluoroscopy and doing further workup if necessary. It doesn't mean that those patients who have a lower esophageal component to their dysphagia don't need Zenker surgery. It just means that they also need to have that addressed in addition to their Zenkers to give them the best possible swallowing outcome. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Backtable ENT podcast. We're a podcast that focuses on all things otolaryngology, and we've got a really great show for you today. Thanks for stopping by. Now a quick word from our sponsor. Cook Medical's otolaryngology head and neck surgery clinical specialty strives to provide otolaryngologists with minimally invasive solutions to address unmet needs. Areas of focus include head and neck, otology, and laryngology, with products ranging from a full suite of interventional silendoscopy products and the Doppler blood flow monitoring system to the BioDesign otologic repair graft and the Hercules 100 transnasal esophageal balloon. For more information, visit cookmedical.com forward slash otolaryngology. Now back to the show. I'm your host today. This is Ashley Agan. I'm a general ENT uh, at UT Southwestern in Dallas. And uh, I have a very special guest today. With me today, I have Dr. Shuman Dar. He's a laryngologist and has a focused practice in treating patients with voice, swallowing, and airway problems. He started his medical training as part of a seven-year BSMD program at the City College of New York and Stony Brook University Medical School. He then completed his ENT residency at SUNY Upstate in Syracuse, New York, and then fellowship in laryngology and bronchoesophagology at UC Davis Medical Center. After training, Dr. Dar joined the faculty at Johns Hopkins, leading their swallowing center for several years. And now he has recently been recruited to UT Southwestern here in Dallas with me. He's my new partner, and uh, he's assistant professor at the Voice and Swallowing Center. Uh, welcome to the show, Shuman. So excited to have you here today. Awesome. Thank you very much for inviting me on. It's a real honor to be part of your show and kind of part of this whole pantheon of illustrious guests you've had in the past. So uh, thank you so much. This is this is great. Absolutely. Um, so today we're going to be talking about Zinker's diverticula, and specifically we're going to get into you know flexible techniques and uh, newer approaches. We um, recently had Rebecca Howell on the show um, to kind of, you know, set the foundation for the diagnosis and management of Zinkers. So, you know, maybe talk to me first a little bit about your practice and your extra training and area of expertise in this area and how that came about. Sure. Thanks a lot, Ashley. Well, I started my ENT training just like everyone else after after college and after my residency. I didn't have a laryngologist per se in my home program. And so I found some uh, interest in uh, in the field 
and ended up doing my fellowship in UC Davis with Dr. Peter Bolafsky and uh, Maggie Kuhn. And uh, that kind of opened up my eyes to this entire world of laryngology and voice and swallowing treatment. And um, we started really getting extremely involved in you know these patients' care. And, and um, after fellowship, I went to Johns Hopkins and I started interacting with various subspecialists from other fields outside of NT, namely some advanced uh, GI endoscopists. And it's really there where I started getting more into uh, advanced endoscopy and kind of looking at flexible techniques and seeing how they can kind of add to our armamentarium so we can be as complete practitioner, as complete a surgeon as possible. And so that's how I got into this whole thing. And, um, you know, this is uh, kind of one of those things we always hear about prior physicians who, after their training, had to learn a whole new set of uh, skills, be it when the robots came out or when laparoscopic surgery became more popular. And so I think that this is kind of a similar thing uh, in the field of Zenker surgery. And so I kind of want to be the person that is introducing this to the rest of my fellow ENTs so they can really offer the entire spectrum of surgical management of, of the disease. That's awesome. And did you seek out that interaction with your GI colleagues or was it just kind of like a serendipitous, you know, crossing of paths? Like, how did that come to be? Well, what I first noticed is that some of these patients uh, ended up seeing me after seeing them or vice versa. And uh, I started looking into this more. And what I came to realize is that initially when I was in my training in residency, we'd hear about flexible zenkers being done uh, by various GI practitioners. And it was kind of looked down upon and looked at as kind of a maybe a subpar technique and a technique that was actually fraught with more complications and kind of more misadventures uh, as a result of that. But then many years forward, uh, the techniques have actually changed quite a bit. And in certain communities and certain areas within the country, a lot of the Zenker's procedures are being done by advanced endoscopists. And so there's kind of been a bit of a, a shift as the technology and as the technique has changed because Zenker's uh, surgery rigid or flexible, is still a very broad categorization. And there are many different sub-techniques within this broader classification that really have evolved significantly from when these techniques first started being used in the mid-90s. And so I kind of started seeing this and looking into this and seeing, well, how are they, how has the techniques changed? And is it safer or is it something that we can add to our patients who sometimes have difficult exposure, things like that. So that's how I got into it. Yeah, I think it's it's very interesting. You know, it goes back to that tribalism. We were all kind of in our own echo chambers because when I was preparing for this, I read some um, of the GI literature and, you know, their take is usually that, oh, the, the surgeons have more complications like with the open approaches and the rigid, you know, endoscopy. Um, and so I, it, I think it's great to see this kind of cross-specialty collaboration and kind of being open to, you know, what's going on? What's this technique about? And how can I, you know, maybe incorporate this and maybe there is a place for it. So let's get into it. So just speaking to, you know, patients who come into your clinic and present, can you briefly touch on 
that typical diagnosis of the patient with the zincers, you know, what does the history look like and your exam and what imaging are you ordering? Sure. Well, when a patient comes in, typically they're, these are patients in their uh, seventh and eighth decade, but we often have patients who come in a little bit younger and uh, they often present with progressive solid food dysphagia, feeling like food's getting stuck in their throat and regurgitation of undigested solid food. Sometimes they have associated voice issues such as like wet, gurgly voice and um, things of that nature. And uh, typically, I, I start off the visit after a, a good physical exam, we start talking about how this thing happened. And I look at Zenkers as a disease that's actually a spectrum. And I look at it as a disease that starts with the hypertonicity of the cricopharyngeus muscle. I explain to the patient that that hypertonicity then leads to a lot of upstream effects. Uh, it leads to upstream solid food dysphagia, meaning food is not able to pass through a tight uh, upper esophageal sphincter. And then further upstream effects are the development of this pulsion diverticulum and this pouch where food is getting caught or liquids or pills. And then even further down the line, uh, developing pharyngeal weakness, pharyngeal dilatation, and that compounds to further swallowing dysfunction. So a UES problem that then can lead to more proximal pharyngeal dysphagia. And so we do our physical exam. I pay attention to a few things very carefully when I see these patients. I pay attention to their mouth opening if they have any trismus. I pay attention to their ability to flex and extend their neck. And probably one of the more important things after you've done a lot of rigid uh, zenker surgery, you pay attention to their, their jaw anatomy and their, uh, their intraoral anatomy. Presence of mandibular tori are notoriously challenging to maneuver around. And a narrow jaw, a narrow anterior jaw, prevents the placement of rigid diverticuloscopes, such as the Weirdoscope or Benjamin Hollinger diverticuloscopes, slimline scopes. These are all things that we need to kind of keep in mind when we're counseling patients, what technique is going to work for them, uh, what are their likelihood of success, and are there anything that we can do preoperatively to optimize intraoperative exposure, which is really when you're talking to any Zenker surgeon, exposure is key. Once you have exposure, the surgery is relatively straightforward, but getting exposure to that Zenker's diverticulum is where a lot of misadventures and complications occur. And uh, this is something we need to kind of prepare for. And then you last asked me about imaging. Typically, I really highly rely on swallowing fluoroscopy. Swallowing fluoroscopy can either be a modified barium swallow study, also known as a video fluoroscopic swallow study, or a esophagram. The most important thing when evaluating these Zenkers patients is that we see these patients and they're being done using a high frame rate, so at least 30 frames per second when these studies are being done. And also what's really important is to really figure out the size of the diverticulum how deep it's going, what type of diverticulum is it? Is it a true Zenkers? Are we dealing with a more rare Killian-Jameson diverticulum or other things like that? And um, are we actually seeing the entire pouch? And so sometimes when you're looking at these studies, uh, the patient's shoulder is in the way. So it's important that the fluoroscopist actually lowers the shoulder or shoots the uh, study at a bit of an angle so the entire pouch can be seen. And then it's also very important most of these studies, uh, we're doing a 
esophageal screen, so an anterior-posterior view of the patient swallowing either a tablet or nectar-thickened liquid, allows us to screen the esophagus for any distal problems that might pose challenges in the postoperative period. But swallowing fluoroscopy to me is the most important uh, diagnostic tool and high-quality swallowing fluoroscopy. And when you start talking to patients about their treatment options, what does that look like and how does that, you know, assessment from the fluoroscopy come into play? Because I mean, the biggest thing that's kind of helping you confirm that it's a zincers, I assume, uh, and not another type of diverticula, as you mentioned. And then it's also giving you a size estimate, right? And then so how does your, you know, conversation about the options go uh, when you're talking to patients? Sure. And I I give them every single option possible. And then we have a pretty extensive discussion on risks and benefits of each. So we always talk about first the open approach, um, which in my opinion is a fantastic approach. And when done correctly has extremely low complication rates, as well as the lowest recurrence rate out of any of the procedures we're going to talk about today. So the tried and true Transcervical approach is a fantastic approach with even very little uh, risk of injury to the recurrent laryngeal nerve, which is what a lot of people talk about in their in their risks when you do a lateral base dissection. And so we talk about the open approach. We then talk about rigid and flexible approaches. And I kind of talk about rigid and flexible approaches almost as if they're two approaches on the spectrum, meaning that this is an approach that can avoid a neck dissection can avoid a prolonged stay in the hospital, but has some other issues. If we're doing a purely rigid approach, the thing that we I talk about patients with is we may not be able to complete a rigid approach due to inability to expose the diverticulum. And in the exposure process, again, as I said before, this is where uh, esophageal tears occur, and this is where a lot of complications could occur in people who have less experience with these diverticuloscopes. And I feel like when training residents exposure of, of a Zenker's diverticulum is probably one of the hardest things to train because it's very much a feel-based and a experience-based uh, exposure. And then I talk about, well, in some cases when we can't do a rigid approach, a flexible approach or a combined hybrid uh, rigid and flexible approach might be the best option if we're really wanting to avoid a, uh, a transcervical approach. I do take size into account When you look at um, a lot of the systematic reviews and international and national studies on flexible approaches, typically the flexible approaches are being done on Zenker's diverticulum with a size around three centimeters, give or take one centimeter plus or minus. And the patients that are getting open approaches, there tends to be a treatment bias and those patients getting open approaches. And I tend to agree with that based on how flexible approaches are done and what what is considered a success with a flexible approach. And so I always explain that if we have a, a large diverticulum, I actually do end up recommending an open approach. And one of the other things is we also see patients with very small diverticulums or patients that have, uh, as my mentor calls it, zenkers in training or zits. And, <laughs> uh, and if we have some patients who have uh, other comorbidities such as oculopharyngeal muscular dystrophy, which presents with a very large CP bar or patients with inclusion body myositis. Sometimes we want to take out as big a chunk of the cricopharyngeus as possible in the surgery. And so I tend to 
in certain patients kind of push an open approach. So you can really do not just a CP myotomy, but a CP myectomy. So I think those comorbidities are also quite important. And then probably the other uh, surgical history that I always ask about is presence of a history of cervical fusion. Patients who've had cervical fusions are notoriously difficult to expose. And sometimes the open approach is is the right approach in, in that case. Yeah. And there's a lot of patients who've had cervical fusions these days. I feel like that's that can be a good subset of patients that just can't extend their neck. So certainly something to you know consider um, as far as during your surgical planning. I want to dive into you know the uh, details of of the flexible endoscopy techniques and maybe even the the hybrid um, techniques that you were talking about. So um, maybe explain you know who's the perfect patient for um, a flexible technique or maybe a hybrid technique. Yeah, that's a great question. So I would say the the perfect patient for a flexible Zenker surgery or even a hybrid uh, surgery is a patient with a Zenker's diverticulum, give or take uh, two to three centimeters in in depth, and patients who might have some anatomic uh, issues that are preventing a really good rigid exposure, mandibular tori, uh, narrow jaw, things of that nature. And so these patients are, are, are great candidates. Large diverticulum patients, as I said before, might not be the best. And so when we look at the history of flexible zenkers, again, this all started being done in the mid-1990s and groups in Brazil and the Netherlands were the first people to do this. And it started out where basically just like in our rigid approaches, we'd visualize the septum of the diverticulum between the Zenker's pouch and the true esophagus and basically cut right down through it, either with stapler or CO2 laser or various other advanced energy devices like bipolar sealers, such as an NCL or uh, harmonic, things like that. And so that's how the initial procedures were done. But then as time went on, people started to adapt another surgery to the flexible approach. And that's the POEM surgery, and that stands for peroral endoscopic myotomy. And that's really when flexible Zenker surgery totally changed, and the recurrence rates went dramatically down, as well as the postoperative complications, such as pneumomediastinum, mediastinal infection, esophageal perforation, and bleeding. And so that's kind of where the whole thing started to change. And uh, these are the types of procedures that I predominantly do, which is the a tunneled pleural endoscopic myotomy. And is your preference still to start with, you know, kind of like the traditional, like rigid endoscope way of doing it? And then if you cannot, then go to the flexible? Or is it getting to where your, you know, comfort level with the flexible makes it, you know, just as easy to, you know, do that from the get go? Yeah, so when I when I first started doing these procedures, I think when we're learning new techniques and we're learning with new instrumentation and even new types of endoscopes, I think we have to take small steps to get as comfortable as possible with each small step, and then we can be comfortable with the most advanced and most difficult uh, types of operations. So what I normally started to do when I thought, hey, this is a technique that I think that T should be learning. Uh, just to give our patients the entire spectrum of treatment options, I'll start with a rigid approach. I'll get a great exposure of the party wall, and then I'll place my 
flexible gastroscope, which is a, a large adult gastroscope through the channel of the rigid endoscope and do the surgery that way. So that's a, a rigid approach. And one of the things that that allowed us to do is have a area of stability within the pouch. So we're not having the esophagus move. We're not having the pouch move. We're entirely stable. And this way we can make our incisions, make our dissections uh, very, very stably, and then clip our incisions closed. And so that's how I, that's how I started out. And that's your that's your hybrid approach. When you, when you say hybrid, you're thinking like your exposure is rigid, but your instrumentation is flexible. That's exactly right. And one of the things that has been hypothesized is, well, what is the thing about Sanker surgery that leads to the lowest recurrence? And what's been hypothesized is, well, if we can do our Zenker's uh, diverticulotomy all the way down to the base, and that if we can do that, there is less of a chance of recurrence. And this septum that, again, divides the pouch from the true esophagus is made up of mucosa, but then within it is muscular septum. And so the basic idea behind a pleural endoscopic myotomy is an incision is made through the mucosa, the muscular septum is then exposed, and then the muscular septum is divided all the way down to the base of the diverticulum. And then the muscular septum is gone, and the mucosal septum remains, and that is entirely clipped shut in a watertight fashion. So what that does, theoretically, is reduce the risk of postoperative pneumomediastinum and esophageal leaks, which are what keep patients in the hospital and lead to serious problems. And over time, that mucosal septum actually settles down. And when you look at these patients' fluoroscopy after surgery, their UAS opening is dramatically improved, as well as the, the residual pouch that you see in all endoscopic diverticulotomies are dramatically reduced, very similar to what a good postoperative rigid diverticulotomy looks like. It's interesting. So it seems it's, it's not as important to completely connect that pouch with the true esophagus. It's, it's more about removing that muscle and it's okay if there's some mucosa that separates the pouch and the esophagus because food is going to preferentially go down the esophagus and it's not going to collect in that pouch. That's exactly right. That's exactly the idea behind these, these tunnel techniques. And as you follow patients, that, that uh, mucosal septum that's left behind if there's no muscle left within the septum, it actually flattens out and these patients look almost near normal uh, postoperatively. And so um, the important thing though is to make sure you actually resect all the muscle. And the visualization, once you get adept at these uh, flexible techniques, is tremendous because you're operating within what's called the third space. And all these operations, palm surgeries, are considered third space surgeries, meaning you're you're in the space between the esophagus and the diverticulum. And that's a space that we as rigid endoscopic surgeons are actually not used to being in. So initially it's actually very disconcerting because you're you're actually in the space that you're technically not supposed to be in. And you're you're pushing a flexible endoscope with CO2 insufflation and uh, tunneling above and below this uh, muscular septum and then cutting right through it. 
But the thing that saves you in the end from any complications is a watertight mucosal seal. And the types of clips that are available now from various companies such as Cook, Olympus, and Microtech, and all these other companies allows you to really clip these uh, mucosal decisions watertight. And so these patients can actually go home the same day or the day after without any significant issues. And so for me, um, that watertight closure allows me to get a good night's sleep after Zenker surgery because back in the day when I was doing mostly um, CO2 laser rigid diverticulotomies, you're always going to worry about, are these patients going to have a leak? Are they going to end up with an NG tube? Are they going to end up in the, in the hospital for several days while we're waiting for that leak to close? Still, there are certain patients, well, I'll do a, a flexible approach, and I think they'll still need to have an NG tube. And we had a patient the other day who had severe Parkinson's disease and pharyngeal dysphagia and had tons of medications that he needed to take. And in the post-operative period, during the healing process and all the edema while we're waiting for it to come down, he still needs to take his medications. He still needs to get enough nutrition in. So we did actually put an NG tube in that patient, and it was helpful for him, even though um, it was a bit of an inconvenience for the patient. From a medical standpoint, it was the right thing to do. But most of the time, we can avoid putting in feeding tubes in these patients because we can have the safety of a watertight closure. Yeah. It's, it's a different way of thinking about treating the, the pouch. And so I want to back up a little bit and I want you to just kind of take me through the procedure, you know, starting at the very beginning. Are your patients um, under general endotracheal anesthesia? I, I know I was in, reading in some of the GI literature, um, there were reports of doing this, you know, under deep sedation. Um, but are you, you know, doing it under general, just like we would do a traditional zinker surgery? Sure. I typically do these types of surgeries under general anesthesia. And I think it's important because when you're doing uh, a flexible surgery and you're in that third space, as I was talking about, you actually want to reduce any chance of bucking um, because actually the patients that have had complications after flexible surgery, such as pneumostomediastinum and esophageal perforations are patients that actually bucked during surgery and moved. And so you really want as many things to be on your side as possible when you're doing these procedures. And so I recommend intubation with a small tube, either a 5-0 or 6-0 um, endotracheal tube. And then you can place a adult uh, flexible gastroscope transorally. And uh, first, I actually go into the esophagus and do a complete esophagoscopy and place a guide wire in the true esophagus. And what that does is it gives you orientation of where the true esophagus is and where your pouch is. Because when you're doing these procedures entirely flexibly, you don't have that uh, that orientation that you do when you're operating from a point of stability. And so once the guide wire is in the true esophagus, you can come back out and then uh, visualize the diverticulum party wall. And then the issue with all these surgeries, as I said, rigid or flexible is are we getting good exposure? So how do we get good exposure with a flexible instrument where there's no uh, weirdoscope that's actually stenting open the esophagus and stenting open the zenkers itself? Well, the thing that allows us to do this is we're actually putting these distal attachment caps on the end of the uh, flexible scope. And this gives us some working room so we can actually see 
the party wall a little bit farther away from us and can actually uh, operate uh, in a, a non-optical cavity. The idea of an optical cavity is important with any type of uh, operation, particularly laparoscopic surgery, where they're insufflating CO2 into the abdomen to create an optical space where you can see what you're doing. And that is what avoids, uh, again, misadventures. And so some people used to start to do these surgeries with what's called an overtube, which is basically a large cylinder that's placed transorally up to where you need to operate. And then a seal is created at the proximal end. A flexible gastroscope can be placed through the overtube and you can operate like that. It's basically like a flexible weirdoscope. But the problem is placing those are a little bit cumbersome and it actually limits your mobility with a flexible scope. So what I found is the best way to get maximum maneuverability with your flexible gastroscope is to use one of these distal caps, distal attachment caps, which gives you enough working space to see what you need to see and uh, operate through the working channel of the flexible endoscope. But nothing is, there's nothing propping anything open in the way that we're used to with traditional surgery, right? The, the patient is kind of laying there in a neutral position and you you know, guide the flexible esophagoscope down to the level that you're working at. It has that cap on it to give you some working room, but that's that's it. Yeah, so the most important part of this is to really get a good visualization of the septum. And once you see the septum between the diverticulum and the true esophagus, you actually make your mucosotomy, meaning making your cut through the septum. And once you make your cut through the septum, then you're actually not really operating outside of the mucosa, you're actually within the mucosa. You're in between the walls of the esophageal mucosa and the walls of the Zenker's pouch mucosa. And so you're you're kind of in a in a space that's entirely collapsed. And so again, that's what is initially disconcerting for surgeons who are typically used to um, operating in a in a in a more stable space. But actually after coming in and out of the of the third space, you can actually easily go out, check your esophagus, go out and check your um, diverticulum and really get a sense of um, how deep the tunnel needs to go. So you really are only removing muscular septum down to where the end of the pouch is. And so when first starting out, I'm constantly moving the flexible scope out of the third space into the esophagus out of the third space and back into the pouch to make sure that we're preserving the mucosa because if you tear through the mucosa, then it makes it harder to have a watertight closure at the end. And so this is the thing that we need to preserve. We need to preserve a clear, straight mucosal uh, incision line so we can clip it closed at the end. And if you do that, then that really preserves the safety of the procedure. And then you're measuring the depth of your pouch just with your scope. So you kind of like drive that down to the distal extent of it and kind of look and see how deep you are on the scope. And then that's how you know how deep to go through the septum. That's exactly right. And uh, one of the things that makes it a lot easier is if you have a rigid exposure, if you have a weirdoscope and you can actually do your uh, tunneled palm surgery with some point of stability so you can very easily measure how long the how long the muscular septum is and interestingly after you do enough of these you can see that as you're cutting through the mucosa and you are cutting then cutting through 
muscular septum, you'll eventually get to the end and you'll stop seeing you'll stop seeing muscle and you'll see basically the end of the of the muscular septum and you'll know when to stop. And so that just comes with experience. So that's why I say when starting out with these new techniques, you really need to start off with uh, something you're you're very familiar with, which is a a rigid exposure and then do the hybrid technique and then you'll eventually get patients where you can't put a weirdoscope in. You're going to get those patients with large mandibular tori with poor neck extension and you won't have the reliability of rigid exposure and you'll have to uh, rely on a purely flexible technique. But you can only really do those techniques once you've achieved a familiarity with a flexible esophagoscope, which really, really we in T don't really train with. When you look at the history of esophagoscopy, esophagoscopy was really pioneered by otolaryngologists, uh, starting with Jackson Chevalier, who performed some of the most earliest rigid esophagoscopies, mainly for um, retrieval of foreign bodies in children and as well as adults. And then when the advent of flexible endoscopy uh, was introduced, then the uh, gastroenterologists and other specialties started diving into um, esophagoscopy and it became more of a diagnostic uh, type of intervention and we started doing less of it. And so as a result, ENTs and thoracic surgeons and other of the more surgical subspecialties kind of lost touch with uh, their flexible esophagoscopy skills because it was considered more of a diagnostic type of tool. But now in the current age, we're able to do pretty much surgery through a flexible endoscope. And so what we need to do as otolaryngologists or surgeons of any specialty is re-familiarize ourselves with the flexible esophagoscope by doing as much uh, other non-advanced endoscopy as much as you can. You become very familiar with the uh, mechanics of how to maneuver this uh, flexible scope. And only then can you really start doing these types of flexible endoscopies where you're doing Zenker surgeries and, and cutting through using advanced energy devices through a flexible scope and, and clipping things closed. It starts with just doing a lot of diagnostic esophagoscopies or EGDs, doing a lot of esophageal dilations, doing a lot of esophageal injections with Botox. These are, these are things that you need to start with before you start getting involved in, in these other things, because it's a, it's a skill that we've really lost and we've really relinquished. And kind of one of the things that I'm trying to um, advocate for is for us to really take back our skills in flexible esophagoscopy. And I think that it's not something that we can see other, other subspecialists innovating in and shying away from. I think it's something that when we see other subspecialists or other specialties uh, innovating and doing something interesting, I think we need to have a healthy skepticism for new technology, but also be open to learning these skills ourselves. Otherwise, we'll be left in the past. And I think that that's not something that I want to do because I think to be a really complete surgeon, you need to be able to offer every opportunity for the patient, every possible approach and be able to manage every possible complication. Yeah, I think I think that's a great point. And it, it is, you know, frustrating for the physician and the patient sometimes when you have to say, oh, I'm going to have to, you know, send you to, you know, my GI colleagues because 
you know, I stop at the larynx. I don't, I don't look in the esophagus, you know, when you're trying to work up swallowing or things like that. So I think it will benefit patients and physicians to be able to kind of be comfortable with that, with that skill and, and looking in the esophagus and working there. It sounds like, to kind of speaking to the zincers, um, that the best case scenario is being able to do it hybrid, to be able to have your scope in for stabilization, but then to also be able to use the flexible scope to kind of tunnel down and remove that muscle. Would you say so? Yeah, I would say so, because I think what that allows you to do is really make sure that you've resected as much of the muscle in the septum as possible. And it really starts out with, after you make your mucosal incision, the first bit of muscle you're resecting is cricopharyngeus muscle, because that's how a zenker starts, where you have the hypertonicity of the cricopharyngeus and doing a very complete cricopharyngeal myotomy. And that, I would say, is what is responsible for the majority of improved symptoms in these patients, a very thorough and very complete cricopharyngeous muscle myotomy. And with the flexible scope, how many like working channels or ports are there? Because you mentioned that you're insufflating. Do you need suction? Do you need like irrigation if the scope gets blood on it? And then you have a port to kind of put these different instruments through? Yeah, absolutely. So you, yeah, we're using an adult gastroscope, which is different than the trans uh, esophageal scopes that we are typically using in the in the diagnostic setting, which I think a lot of ENTs are now becoming much more familiar with. So these are large scopes with a lot better optics and a lot larger working channel. And so the working channel allows you to suction, allows you to place instruments through, and allows you to irrigate. So you can irrigate uh, when there's excessive bleeding. You can advance various different tools through the working channel. These tools can be basically monopolar cautery. You can have scissor type cautery. You can have coag graspers. You can have clips and uh, all sorts of different, every every type of possible shape and size of, uh, of advanced energy device can be placed through the working channel. But then you also have the capability to irrigate and the capability to suction. But once you have a instrument through the working channel, your suction capabilities and your irrigation capabilities are much reduced because you have an instrument through the main working channel. And so oftentimes we're pulling instruments back and forth through the working channel to to do our surgery. And so the flexible diverticulotomy surgery is actually one of the things that kind of points us against it. It's extremely equipment heavy type of surgery. And so you're using at least three or four types of uh, disposable advanced energy devices, you're, you're having to use a separate advanced energy um, platform, such as an Irby machine or something like that, which is different than uh, a typical Bovee, where you're, you're able to manipulate various different factors in terms of types of cauterization that you're doing. You're having to use a various different types of clips, which are typically um, one clip per package. And so it's a quite a um, equipment-heavy and expensive procedure. And so that is one of the rate-limiting factors for this being kind of broadly utilized because it's um, it's a procedure that takes a long time to do, typically about an hour to an hour and a half, and that changes. The learning curve for learning the procedure is quite steep. I would say you'd have to do about 15 to 20 before you start to really become comfortable 
and probably about 50 before you really master the procedure itself. And and then again, there there's the costs with equipment. And so these are things that are important when thinking about, you know, why is this thing not being utilized uh, as much widely? Yeah. And, and when you're talking about doing the myotomy, um, so, so you've made your incision in the mucosa, and then what are you using as you're, you know, coming through the muscle? And are you, is it necessary to remove muscle or just cutting through the muscle is sufficient? Yeah, that's a great uh, question because when we are doing our open approaches, uh, when we're doing our CP myotomy and then removing the, the pouch itself using a diverticulectomy, we are uh, typically uh, cutting through the muscle and actually taking a bit of a chunk of the muscle out. And that's the uh, myectomy part, which I feel does a lot to reduce the recurrence rate in these uh, Zenkers patients. And so when you are cutting through the muscle, the types of cautery that we're using are basically able to, to vaporize uh, the muscle. So when we're, when we're tunneling through, we're able to uh, get rid of as much muscle as possible. So you're making a straight cut, but you're also able to, to kind of um, remove and vaporize a uh, a lot of the muscle. So that's something that, again, um, is a little bit easier to do when you have a point of stability with the rigid scope in place. And can you kind of go over the the differences between just doing a septotomy versus the, you know, different phases of a Z-poem versus flexible in-seal, like all of these kind of different types of um, variations of the flexible procedure? So I'd say that the the first iteration of flexible techniques, again, started in the 1990s. And this was, again, basically finding the septum and cutting right through it. And you would maybe cut right down through it. And what surgeons were initially doing or gastroenterologists were initially doing was cutting through the septum, getting about five millimeters to the end and leaving five millimeters of pouch and then taking one or two clips and clipping the base of the pouch and calling it a day. And that's going through the mucosa as well. Exactly, going through mucosa. Kind of like we like the standard way that we do it too. Absolutely. And so that's what some people coined the standard septotomy. And that's again what we do when we do a laser or a stapler. We cut through mucosa and we cut through muscle, but we leave a little bit behind. The uh, rigid surgeons, we leave a little bit behind because we just can't get to the very end uh, based on our visualization, or the stapler itself has a bit of dead space at the end. And in fellowship, we were, you know, modifying the staplers, but that's not something we're able to really do anymore. And so we can't modify the staplers, and they have such an amount of dead space at the end, it's leaving a bit of a pouch behind and a bit of septum behind. And the same thing with the flexible approaches initially, they were just kind of getting to about five millimeters left and then putting a bunch of clips in because that's what they felt comfortable with and they didn't want to have a post-operative leak. But what they found was there was about a 20% recurrence rate in these patients and a high symptom recurrence rate. And, and that wasn't really found to be acceptable. So then the, the Z-POMS uh, technique started. And again, POMS is something that was initially uh, a technology that was utilized to treat a condition called achalasia, which is not a condition of the upper esophageal sphincter, which is what a Zenkers is, but a condition of hypertonicity of the 
lower esophageal sphincter. And we all remember in medical school, these patients get an esophagram. They have the classic bird beak esophagram, and it's basically a really tight lower esophageal sphincter muscle. And so this was initially treated with heller myotomy, laparoscopic surgery, finding the LES muscle through the abdomen and cutting it. But what they found was, well, we could actually go in through the mouth into the esophagus, create a cut through the esophageal mucosa approximately, tunnel down into the third space between the mucosa and the muscle, isolate the muscle and cut through it, and then clip the mucosa proximally and therefore uh, loosen the lower esophageal sphincter muscle so food can pass easily from the esophagus into the stomach. And so then that's what happened. And they started to adopt this type of surgery to the to Zenkers. And that's when the, um, the first tunneled procedure started. Initially, the mucosotomy was being done proximal to the septum. And they were tunneling all the way from proximal pharynx into the septum, which was a very cumbersome uh, and difficult thing to do. But then what they realized is, well, let's do a combination of a standard septotomy, find the septum, just cut right onto it, and then tunnel in front and behind the muscular septum, cut right through it, get all the way down to the end, get all the way down to the end of the muscular septum, and then you have a very clear incision line that you can just clip closed. And that's kind of how things how things changed. And so when you look at these large systematic reviews and meta-analysis, looking at flexible zenkers, it's important to think, well, what technique are they using? And how is that technique um, reflected in recurrence rate, bleeding rate, uh, and leak rate, which are the really the three major things. And then the last thing is aborting the procedure, which any zenker surgeon who has had enough surgeries has aborted a fair amount of them, no matter what technique they use. And and the other thing I, f- I have found interesting looking at this technique is the clips. So like there's these little metal clips that are, you you kind of clip the mucosa together at the end, and then they just fall away and move through the digestive tract in time, right? Yeah. So for me, using these clips have really provided a level of safety um, that we just really didn't used to have when we even when we do it our, our CO2 laser diverticulotomies, we'd pretty much just cut through the party wall and then just leave it open. And we'd always tell our anesthesiology colleagues, please don't uh, do any uh, positive pressure ventilation after extubation. So we don't kind of open up a big space uh, through our surgery and uh, create a potential for, uh, for pneumomediastinum or, or mediastinitis and, and abscess formation. So the clips that initially were being used were very large and bulky clips, and patients actually had uh, would complain to me of foreign body sensation for several weeks. But nowadays, the optimum clips are clips with a very wide clip diameter, but a very short uh, stem. And they typically fall off about two to four weeks after the procedure, and uh, they eventually just swallow them, and it just passes normally through their digestive tract. And they really don't notice them. So as the clip size has uh, decreased, the uncomfortability of uh, of patients has actually dramatically gone down. And if you x-ray these patients, which I typically do after any Zenker surgery, I will do an esophagram or 
modified barium swallow study if we can. We'll see these clips for, for quite a while afterwards. So initially, many of my colleagues were skeptical of using these clips because they were just, well, are these really going to stay in place? And uh, are they going to fall off? And are we going to be left with a, a huge hole in the esophagus, which you've just created? And certainly that's a risk and, and uh, leaks do occur um, and have occurred in these patients. But these leaks are quite rare and these clips hold pretty well. And so the thing that I just run into is, uh, do you have the stability to place these clips properly and reapproximate mucosa? And uh, are these clips the proper size? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's it's pretty amazing to imagine. I mean, I'm thinking about how you place them because the, the clips are, you're using the working channel of your flexible scope, right? And that's it. And you're bringing, you're bringing together these edges of the mucosa with just this clip on the end of your flexible scope. So I would imagine that would be challenging to take some time to learn. <laughs> yeah, it is. It is a challenging part of the procedure. But interestingly enough, after you've completed your poem procedure, there's a lot more space to play with between the two edges of the mucosa. It's a lot more forgiving in terms of placing these clips. Whereas if you were to make a mucosotomy and uh, not resect any muscle and then try to clip it closed, you don't have as much um, laxity of the mucosa to be able to close uh, it in a watertight fashion. And again, I, I typically place about four to five clips and we really don't leave much uh, space at all after these are done. Yeah, then they typically stay on for about a month. And that makes sense because you've got all that kind of redundant mucosa, so it kind of probably comes together easier. And so speaking to your post-operative care, now you've put in your clips, so you've closed things up and now you know you're done. What are you telling your anesthesiologist? Do you still tell them, you know, avoid positive pressure? Um, are they going home? Are you observing them? Um, what kind of diet are you putting them on? Uh, what does that immediate post-op period look like? Yeah, for me, it's pretty standard. I typically like to wake them up uh, without any positive pressure because, again, these clips, although they, they work pretty well, there's still some small amount of space around them. And so I do like to avoid positive pressure if possible. Um, but if we need to, and sometimes we have patients who have tremendous uh, reduction in, in lung capacity due to history of COPD and other types of problems that they really do need some positive pressure to be able to, to be woken up. And that's okay. And I think we have to accept that risk. And then the other thing that I do is uh, I typically, when I feel very confident about how nicely we've clipped things closed, I, I don't put an NG tube in and uh, we keep them overnight. And we do a swallow study the next day. If there's not any evidence of any leak, then uh, we start a full liquid diet for about a week. Then I transition to a soft diet for about another week. And then by the third week, they're eating they're eating regular food. And uh, I found that that is pretty well tolerated by the patients. Um, and if I do see evidence of a small leak, then I typically will have them be NPO until until that leak resolves. And so that's that's the thing that really results in a lot more use of medical resources is when we when we're finding a leak postoperatively. And so I feel like the the cost of of these surgeries and the cost of using clips are kind of I felt somewhat offset by the reduced stay in the hospital and uh, and use of those resources. And so that's what I I usually typically do. And then of course we look at the patient's comorbidities and and their medications that they need to take and. And that also kind of lets us know, is this someone that we're going to need to have um, alternate means of nutrition uh, while they're healing from the surgery? 
And I feel it typically takes a few weeks for them to really get back to their their optimum swallowing. And so I always do a formal four-week post-operative modified barium swallow once the swelling has come down from surgery and once that septum has had time to settle down the residual mucosal septum that we leave behind. And um, yeah, that's that's pretty much my typical post-operative routine. I typically don't use antibiotics. And I typically don't need to give um, steroids or anything like that. Do you let people use their CPAP? Can they use positive pressure if they need their CPAP machine? Uh, that I actually have not started. Uh, I've been a bit more uh, conservative about that. And then I felt like we've had patients where they've needed it. And then we've kept them in the hospital for um, about a day or two until they're until I feel confident that we're able to restart CPAP. So certainly those patients present a risk. And again, that's something that we should take into account preoperatively. And maybe those are the patients that we should be offering the classic uh, transcervical approach. Because again, uh, if you look at the data, the recurrence rates are, are significantly lower and the patient satisfaction is tremendous with the transcervical uh, approach, the classic approach. Um, and so I, I don't think that there's this idea among other certain subspecialists that the transcervical approach is not something we do anymore, or it's an antiquated approach. It, I actually don't feel that way. I feel that this is an approach that is an extremely useful approach and a great surgery that shouldn't be abandoned because there's, there's, there are certain patients that really do need that approach. And so I think we really have to have all these, uh, all these options. And, and those patients that are tremendously reliant on positive pressure uh, for other comorbidities. I think that's a great indication to actually go for the uh, the diverticulotomy, which is a uh, uh, diverticulectomy transcervically. Yeah. So, so the take home is not to transition to doing everything flexible. It's to have lots of tools in your toolbox and still be able to, you know, offer patients the the variety or to be able to adapt depending on what the patient needs are and and the patient factors. Absolutely. I think that. Uh, there is still a place for probably all these surgeries, and I think we just need to look very, uh, very closely at at patient factors. I think if uh, all you have is one tool, that's all you're going to use. But if you have three or four tools at your at your disposal, you're comfortable with each approach, then you're really going to be able to offer patients the right thing. And I think that that's the way to look at it. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for taking the time today. I feel like this is really um, exciting to learn about this, especially since I didn't see this uh, in residency. And for listeners who um, want to learn more and want to develop this technique and have this as a, a tool to be able to offer patients, any recommendations for courses or how to learn more, how to develop this skill set? Absolutely. I think that Again, as I said before, we as ENT surgeons can start by becoming on our own uh, more proficient with using the flexible esophagoscope. Some of my colleagues are placing G-tubes and are using the flexible esophagoscope for dilations and things of that nature. Well, certainly just use the adult um, transoral approach and get comfortable with that. Then once you've I felt achieved mastery and comfortability using that, on your own. Certainly really good to see some of these procedures uh, live and in person and get some hands-on training. And I, there are a few courses. Um, there's one at Johns Hopkins and the advanced endoscopy team there uh, led by Dr. Moen Kshab. He uh, puts on a wonderful course with uh, live instruction, 
that's a course that I think also has a video component. And so there's a, a virtual re- virtual component and a, uh, an in-person component. And I feel that's a great way to, to learn some of these techniques. And then I think once you start doing them on your own, start small, start from a area of familiarity, and then work your way up to the more advanced patients. Pick your patients really well. Uh, start with a really easy uh, exposure. So if you are trying a flexible approach and it's not working out well, go back to your rigid approach and uh, give the patient a great outcome and, and a good surgery and uh, and then try again next time. And so I think this is the way uh, forward. And I think, again, be skeptical of claims about um, new techniques from from others, but don't be afraid to get your hands on it and try it yourself. And I think that's the way forward. Great advice. I love it. Awesome. Well, uh, we'll um, wrap things up. Any um, last parting words, anything I failed to, to ask you or, you know, if listeners want to find you or learn more about you, any websites or social media that you want to put out there? For anyone interested in contacting me, you can find me through the UT Southwestern Voice and Swallowing Center on social media. I can be found on LinkedIn. I'm also a medical advisor to the National Foundation of Swallowing Disorders. This is a foundation that is a leading resource for dysphagia education, patient-slash-caregiver support, and serves as a clearinghouse for cutting-edge research and development. The NFOSD has a commitment to providing patient hope and improving quality of life for those suffering from all types of swallowing disorders. I would like to plug this organization specifically and encourage healthcare professionals and patients listening to this to explore the opportunities of the NFOSD. I'm giving a live video patient-focused lecture on novel approaches to Zenker's treatment through the foundation on August 30th at 7 p.m. So tune in and there'll be lots of uh, videos from these procedures that will hopefully help you learn a little bit more about this. Lastly, in addition to helping patients with swallowing disorders, I also have a strong interest in voice care, and I would like to plug a multi-institutional educational project we're working on called stroboscopy.org. This is going to be a free, video-based online learning resource for voice professionals at any stage of training and experience. Given that stroboscopy is a video-based diagnostic tool, we felt that an online resource would be the best option to serve the voice care community. Stroboscopy.org is a non-for-profit entity where experts from across the world can submit high-quality laryngeal stroboscopy videos so others can learn from their experience and skill. A beta version will be going live in the next few weeks, so look out for that. All right. Wonderful. Well, thank you again for taking the time. Uh, Listeners, thank you for stopping by the show. Thanks, Ashley. Appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at underscore Backtable ENT on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Twitter. Backtable ENT is hosted by Gopi Shaw and Ashley Agan. Our audio team is led by Kieran Gannon with support from Josh McWhorter, Aaron Bowles, Nick Shellcross and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz with support from Taylor's version Hess and Yvonne Ovijinsky. Social media and PR by Chi Ding. Administrative support provided by Jimmy Lee Kinnebrew. 
Thanks again for listening and see you next week.